Father, thank you for um, not just Christmas time, but what Christmas means. And thank you for the mercy that you showed us, not because we were deserving of it, but because you chose to set your affections on us. You chose to offer us deliverance and hope in Christ. And who would have ever thought that deliverance would come not through armies, not through medicine, but through a baby, a baby who would come and live a life and have a ministry, and then the ultimate, ultimate offering that he gave us was his very own life, his very own blood, his very own body, uh, a life that was, by all accounts, ended in tragedy, ended in horror, ended in a major miscarriage of justice, and yet it wasn't ended. Came back to life three days later. And the Christ that we remember in a manger at Christmas is the Christ that remains alive today. The marks of a spear in his side, the marks of nails in his hands and feet, interceding for people like us who've not got it figured out, who've not perfected our lives yet, but who, who have surrendered and been made right with you because of our faith in Christ, not because of our perfect execution of morality. And every sinner here, including this one, is ever so grateful for that. That's good news. And it's good news that we have to declare to the nations, indeed, have been commanded to declare to the nations. And uh, we pray this morning for our time together that you would yet speak to us again as your ambassadors um, that you are sending into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to find uh, in your Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 9, <clears throat> we'll be looking at some verses there this morning. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember a, a movie that was done back in 2008. Uh, Jim Carrey was the lead character back when he was funny instead of bitter. Um, yes Man. Any, any of you see Yes Man? Most of you don't want to admit it that you saw it. So Jim's kind of a, his character was kind of a negative guy in the movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, he didn't want to go out, and he didn't want to take any risks in life. And one of his friends had been to some seminar where a uh, kind of self-improvement speaker encouraged people to say yes. Instead of saying no to everything, why don't you say yes? And he persuaded Carrie to go to one of these things, and the speaker ended up pulling him out of the audience. And... Um, Carrie left that meeting deciding that he was going to say yes to everything for the next year. Well, that meant everything from saying yes to a Persianwife.com, uh, saying yes to a total stranger uh, who wanted him to ride on, his on her motorcycle, and he was terrified to do, but he has to say yes to it, learning Korean, anything that came up in the course of his life he was saying yes to. And, of course, it led to some uh, hilarious uh, circumstances and to some major disasters. At the end, he encounters this speaker again, and the speaker said, personally, and the speaker said, I never meant for you to say yes to everything or everyone. You have to pick and choose. What are the most important voices to listen to? What are the most important things that you're being asked to do? And the title of this last message in our series on evangelism is Say Yes. I don't know how many of you were here uh, two years ago when Life Action was here for the summit, <clears throat> eight-day summit. But one of the things that has continued to resonate in my soul for these past two years was the theme of that summit, Say Yes to God. I just got an um, uh, email from John Avant, the head of Life Action Ministry, the other day. And again, that theme popped up, Say Yes to God, Say Yes to God. Here's the thing, when we say yes to God, in most cases, when we say yes to God, we're going to be saying no to some other people. We're going to be saying no to some other things. And so this morning, I want us to just ponder what's God saying to us when it comes to 
this great, glorious good news that we've just celebrated here at Christmas, beginning of it. Uh, what's, our, what's God saying to us that we are called to say yes to then in response? God desperately longs to hear us say yes in obedience and probably nothing more than um, when it comes to evangelism. And by the way, a warning here. For those of you who have been military, um, what you're going to hear this morning sounds familiar. For the rest of us, um, my guess is that some of us are going to even chafe at what you hear. Because we're going to talk about duty. And duty is not a song that plays well in 2020 America. Uh, duty is something that uh, we think those are people who have, you know, they're, they're, they're constrained by dictators or they're constrained by um, con con people that try to control us. And, and maybe that's a major loss for Christianity if we think about things like that, that we perhaps even as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we don't want to say, yes, sir. We, we're reluctant, we drag our feet when God puts something on the table and says, I want you to do this. And we're like, eh, I'll think about it. And so just to prepare you, the things that you're going to read in the scripture are, are going to be not uh, forthright, very much in your face. So let's buckle up and read these verses in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to drop in in the middle of a, a kind of a middle of a long conversation that Paul begins at the start of the chapter. What was taking place, Paul was writing to the Corinthian Christians about some things that were going on in Corinth that he was troubled by. Now, Paul had been in Corinth for about a year and a half, and many of these people he had led to faith in Christ himself and discipled. Uh, along with uh, Aquila and Priscilla and possibly um, Apollos as well. But he was, he was key guy in their lives. So he was really a spiritual father to them. And if you would read 2 Corinthians, you find out more about what was happening uh, among these people. After Paul left, they were looking to other Christian leaders who were coming through town. Uh, Paul calls them super apostles in 2 Corinthians. And they were looking to them as more the go-to guys, their spiritual mentors now, than Paul. And, and Paul's like, um, well, I have, I have a prior authority with you, but it, that's okay. And he's talking in this particular chapter about financial support. Now, the scripture makes clear that those who teach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. But Paul was saying, look, I am not interested in your money. I am interested in proclaiming the gospel to you. And, and I want to do it for free so that there's no wedge between what I'm saying and how you're feeling. So that's, that's the big picture context of this whole chapter. And in the midst of that, he goes on a tear about the importance of this calling in his life about preaching the gospel. So we're going to start at verse 16. Yet preaching the gospel, or preaching the good news or the gospel is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. Now just let that line simmer in your soul for a second. Compelled. I mean, there's no wiggle room there. There's no, that's, this is not lightweight stuff. I'm, let's use another word. I'm forced by God to do it. And you're like, wait a minute. You know, in Christ we're free. It's all of grace. Here's Paul, one of the premier apostles, saying, I have to do it. God's making me do it. God's forcing me to do it. I am compelled by God to do it. Oh, and then it gets worse. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. I wonder what that, wonder what he means. What would the terrible consequences be of not preaching the good news? Verse 17, if I were doing this on my own initiative, I deserve payment, but I have no choice for God has given me this sacred trust. He has taken something that's very meaningful to him, to God, and he's put it in my hands and says, there you go. It's all, the ball is entirely in your court. 
And if you don't play it, the game's not going to happen. What then is my pay? It is the, and I love the fourth word in this sentence, it is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news, meaning my rights to pay. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. In other words, there is this single-mindedness in Paul's eyes. This is, this is what I live for. And, and I'm not going to let any other diversion, distraction, any other impediment get in the way of this. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. In other words, I don't, I don't, I'm, I don't sin in order to do this. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. Now, Paul was an apostle, right? So he's one of a select few. The apostles in the New Testament include... Peter, James, and John, the 12 followers of Jesus, Jesus, minus Judas, who took his own life. And then Matthias, Acts 1, uh, Acts 2, who replaced uh, Judas. And then the, Paul, who was an apostle. And then maybe Silas and maybe Barnabas. There might be 15, 16 apostles in the New Testament. What were their qualifications? Well, the, the word apostle means one sent with authority. Sent by who? Sent by God. With authority to do what? Well, to start churches and to oversee churches. So the Apostle Paul would go, he would, he would share the gospel in places, and he would start churches, and he would appoint elders, and then he would have oversight of those churches as he moved on. would come back and check on them, see how they're doing, write them letters, and so forth. And the apostles were also enabled by God to write scripture. In other words, they would write down things that God wanted to communicate to his people, um, and we have them ensconced in the Bible. Now, because of what Acts 1 says, it says that the apostles had to be people who saw Jesus and observed his life and ministry. Uh, apostle, I, I use the term apostle, capital A. Apostles like that don't exist anymore. But the fundamental work of an apostle was missionary work, evangelism. And so we would look at many of the people that we support that are doing mission work around the world, our global partners, they're doing apostolic kinds of work, small a. So the, the fundamental work of Paul that he's talking about here is not writing scripture and, and it's not even planning churches, it's evangelism. So by that definition, you and I are evangelists. You and I are apostles, small a. You and I have been designated to do the same things that Paul's designated to do. So when we get to a text like this, this is not just for some elite crowd in the body of Christ. It's for all of us. Now do you understand what I meant by my warnings? The kinds of things that Paul is, is saying about himself, we're saying about ourselves as well. And I have two main points that I want to draw out of this. One, we tell others about Jesus because we're God's conscripts. Now, that might be a, a conscript might be a word foreign to you unless you're as old as I am and registered for the draft when the draft was still active. So the year I turned 18, I had to register with the Selective Service Board, was also the year that the draft was eventually um, phased out. But that year I had to register and I got a lottery number and depends how high or how low your number was, you did or didn't get drafted. So my number was 177 
And anybody over 95 wasn't going to get drafted. And then, of course, as the year wore on, nobody got drafted the year, that year because the draft phased out. A conscript is a recruit. So it's a, someone who is drafted, not a recruit. That's wrong. So like my son, when he joined the army, he was a recruit. He wasn't drafted. He wasn't forced into the army. He didn't have to go into the army. He chose to. A conscript is someone who has no choice. In fact, the meaning of the word is one who is forced to serve. One who is forced to serve. And when you were drafted during the Vietnam War or earlier, uh, your life changed and you suddenly lost all control of your life. So the guys who were drafted, they, they hopped a train or a bus, they went to a military installation, and they didn't pack. Why? Because when they got to their base, they got a haircut, and it was just like everybody else's haircut. Uh, they got the same pants that everybody else got. They got the same T-shirts that everyone else got. They even got the same underwear everybody else got. And they didn't have the luxury of getting up, uh, I'm going to sleep until 7.30 tomorrow morning. No, you're going to be up at 4. And I'd like to have a leisure. Well, if I have to get up at 4, I'll have a leisurely breakfast until 5, and then I'll go up. No. You went for a run with a rucksack on your back at 4, 4.30. Everybody did the same thing. You did exactly as you were told. Exactly, because you were a conscript. You and I are God's conscripts. I mean, the, the language is unavoidable, isn't it? I, I'm compelled by God to do this. I don't, I don't have any choice. Or 16. If you have a more literal translation, it says this. Necessity is laid upon me. I have to do this. Necessity is laid upon me. By who? You've heard, been here a while, you've heard me talk about the divine passive many times in Scripture where you hear the passive voice. In other words, the action is being done by someone, but we don't know who. Well, many times it's divine. It's the divine passive. God's doing it. So this NLT rendering, God compels me to do it, is spot on. God has compelled me to do it. He's forcing me to do this. I don't have any choice. When you hear that, you might think, well, what if I'm not able to do this? What what if, what, if God, okay, let's say for argument's sake that God is asking me to be one who tells others about Jesus. But what if I can't do it? Whoever God compels, he makes competent. Whoever God compels, he makes competent. Even the Apostle Paul, look at a couple of ver uh, chapters beyond this. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. So we all know, or you may not know, Paul's background was he was an academic. He was a strict Pharisee among the Jews. Uh, probably had the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Um, this was a guy, he, he, was, he was no slouch when it came to religious stuff. And yet where does he look at for his power? his competency. Whatever I am now, it is because God poured out his special favor on me, his grace. Whatever I am now, it's not because of my training, it's not because of my memorization, it's not because of my uh, uh, slavish adherence to the law. It's because of God's grace. God poured out his special favor on me, and that wasn't without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. And you might think, oh, now he's shifting to his hard work. Okay, that's the reason he's been successful. Yet, he goes on, yet it was not I, but God who was working in me by his grace. Whoever God compels, he makes competent. And that includes you and me. I'm going to share, uh, toward the end of the message, I'm going to share something that happened to me about four weeks ago. And... Again, if you've been here over the years, you've probably heard me share more experiences when it comes to evangelism, uh, more of my experiences where I failed than where I succeeded. And I do that on purpose well, for two reasons. One, because I do fail more than I succeed. And two, I want you to know that you can fail a lot too and still succeed. You know, our responsibility is not to lead people to Jesus Christ. 
Let me say that again. Our responsibility is not to lead people to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're struggling to say amen to that, hear me out. Our responsibility is to tell people about Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel. It's God's responsibility to save people. And that's why people like me who are bad evangelists occasionally get to lead people to Jesus Christ because it's God who's doing the work. He takes us in our inabilities, in our incompetencies, and he makes us competent through his power. I am compelled by God to do it. You feel the burden of duty there? Again, same verse. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. Again, if you have a more literal translation like the ESV, it says, woe to me if I fail to preach the gospel. Woe to me. What's he talking about? What awful thing is going to happen to Paul if he doesn't preach the good news? I don't know. One commentator is convinced that Paul deliberately left this ambiguous so, so we can kind of let our imaginations run wild with us. It's t something terrible, so we better carry out a duty. Here, here's what I do know. Uh, go to Bible Gateway or your concordance and put in the word woe, W-O-E. And see what comes up. Just, just stick with the New Testament. There's plenty of it in the Old Testament too, but just stick with the New Testament. And then read all the passages that talk about woe. You know, Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. Woe to you when you take your, um, your peppermint tea out of your garden and you tithe a tenth of that to the Lord. And yet you steal the houses of widows from underneath them. Woe unto you when you seek a disciple, you search heaven and earth for a disciple, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. The book of Revelation, three times. Woe unto this people because they have resisted repentance and here's what's coming on them. Here's the first woe. Here's the second woe. Here's the third. In every instance where woe is used, there's some aspect of judgment. And I don't know what Paul was thinking about, whether or not in his calling, I mean, God made it clear to him when he called him on the road to Damascus and then three days following, he's blind, you know. God sends Ananias to see Paul and he says, I want you to tell this guy how much he's going to have to suffer for me to reach the Gentiles of the gospel. And it may be that in that understanding that he was sovereignly selected from among everyone to be this apostle to the Gentiles, that he understood that if he decided to sit on his hands and no longer going to do that, that just maybe that was an indicator that he didn't know Christ at all. And that maybe he's thinking that would be an evidence of God's judgment on, and that I would experience God's judgment because I wasn't really saved to begin with. I don't know. Just trying to plumb the depths of what he's thinking in his mind. How terrible would it be if I don't tell people about Jesus? All I know is he feels, he feels this compulsion and it would be some, something bad in his mind. He goes on in verse 17 then to say, if I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice for God has given me this sacred trust. In other words, God has no backup plan. If I don't tell people about Jesus, people are going to find out about Jesus. In other words, we can't console ourselves with this idea, if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. There are people far more skilled than I am, the people who are far more articulate. They know more Bible. They know more Scripture than me. If I don't do it, God's got some backup plan. You're the backup plan. I'm the backup plan. We're the ones he's calling. We're the ones he's compelling. He's the, we're the ones that he's assigning. And the person to your left and to your right and behind you and in front of you is not. 
have no choice. I've been given a sacred trust, the ESV says. Sacred trust. It means it's come from God's hand himself. It means that turning from it is not simply a matter of making a choice whether I'm going to have a Diet Coke or a Dr. Pepper. It's a sacred trust. Are you, are you feeling the duty call? And I don't mean by that that everyone that you come across, you say, hmm, I guess God wants me to talk to this person about Jesus but rather that everyone we come across, this becomes the thought process. I wonder if he or she knows Jesus. And from the thought process, it leads to the prayer process. God, if this person doesn't know Christ, open a door for me that I can speak to him or her about Jesus. And give me the courage to do so. In other words, we, you know, Paul says, I once, I think this was the text we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He said, I once looked at people this way, but now I look at people this way. Do we start with, uh, you meet a stranger and say, I wonder if they could be a, a friend of mine, if they'd make a good friend, or I wonder if they like to do things that I like to do, rather thinking about them in terms of, do they know Jesus? Because, listen, at the end of the age, and this is one of the things that I think is so glorious about COVID-19, people who have not thought about death in years are thinking about death. And people who realize they've never really wrestled about what happens after death, what's my life going to be like, because we kind of go along our merry way, we have so many diversions that, that keep us preoccupied with life here and now. And now you can't pick up a newspaper. You can't look at the news on your screen. You, you can't have conversations with other people without talking about COVID-19. It almost comes up instinctively. By the way, did you ever think about the opportunities that's creating for us to talk about Jesus? And my hope is in someone who has more for me than just this life. Sacred trust. We tell others about Jesus because we're God's conscripts. And you might ask me the question, say, well, so do I have to approach life now with this kind of military idea that I'm under orders? And isn't that kind of graceless? No. If, if grace refutes all commands, we might as well throw the Bible out. You know, the command of Scripture is for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, right? Men, can I get an amen? Keith, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a command. It... Do we lose the joy because it's a command? I'm having a ball. I'm having a great time. I'm, I'm head over heels in love with my wife. I can't get enough of her. I talked with a guy um, about 20 years ago uh, when the Internet was still relatively young, but I found his description of his love affair with his wife online, and I corresponded with him a couple of times. He's a, he was in Nova Scotia. His wife had passed away. They'd been married 25 years. And it was an incredible tribute to their relationship. And on the website um, that he had started, his children wrote this. We have to put mom on a pedestal to keep dad away from her. So that dad's not always at her. Because he loves to be with her. Loves to hold her. Loves to kiss her. The fact that I'm called to love my wife doesn't diminish the delight in my wife. Nor does it lack grace. Why do I love my wife? Because I'm a great guy? I'm not. I love my wife because of God's grace in my life. He is empowering me and enabling me to love her despite her vast array of bad things. I'm just kidding. She really makes it easy. 
But God gives me the grace to carry out the command and find delight in it. And he'll do that with you as well in this call in your life. He'll do that with me. Secondly, out of this text, we tell others about Jesus by becoming their servants. Beginning of verse 19. Even though I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew. When I was with those who followed the law, I lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to law, I did this so I could bring to Christ. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm willing to pay any price. Accommodate them. Sub, subvert my own freedoms on their behalf. Willing to do everything. Verse 23, I do everything to spread the good news and share its, in its blessing. He was willing to do everything to interest people in the gospel. Now, in the last 30 years or so, there are some Christians who have taken this passage and said they've, they've been willing to make moral compromises, saying, well, you know, Paul was willing to do this, and Paul never made moral compromises. In fact, that's why, I think that's why he put in there, verse 21, I don't ignore the law of God, obey the law of Christ. In other words, I'm, I'll put it this way. Paul didn't compromise his faith. He conceded his freedoms. As a Christian, even though he, he was Jewish, he didn't need to obey the law, the, the law of Moses. Why? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of the years of offering sacrifices and the, oh, the high priests and all of that, all of that was meant to educate the Jewish people and prepare them for the Messiah in whom all of the law would be fulfilled. And so Paul didn't need to eat kosher anymore, but he did when he was in a Jewish household. Paul didn't need to make vows like a Nazarite where he cuts his hair and pays money and so forth, but he did, Acts 26, 16, so that he could win Jewish people to Christ. In other words, he's, he's not trying to leverage them. He's simply trying to get rid of unnecessary obstacles. So, for example, if you lived next door to a Muslim family, that's a Muslim couple, and you invited them over for dinner, if you did your due diligence and tried to figure out how they thought and how they lived, let, let's say they're a very observant Muslim couple, even though in a normal situation you might offer wine at dinner or you might offer them a beer, you wouldn't because observant Muslims don't drink alcohol. And if you were the wife and you did your due diligence, you would know that the, uh, there's a great deal of modesty in the Islamic community. And even though you like your spaghetti strap top, you wouldn't wear it that night at dinner and create an unnecessary offense. In other words, you, you love more than your wine, more than your top, you love people knowing Jesus. And you're willing to make, make whatever accommodations will accomplish that. I do wonder, as I was wrestling with this text, I, is that really, are those the kinds of obstacles that we have today with people and I came to the conclusion that's not mainly in fact the everything <clears throat> the everything there in verse uh, 23 I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings I wonder if the everything that we mainly need to do today is not overcoming cultural or religious sensitivities but rather our own personal anxieties about talking to people about Jesus. Here's a couple of samples. If some of you are like me, my schedule is way too important. I have to be somewhere. <laughs> have you ever had an opportunity to t continue a conversation with somebody? You might not have even gotten to the gospel yet, but you think it might go there. And you look at your watch, you know, there's... You're, your calendar on your phone goes ding, ding. About eight, nine years ago, uh, God was trying to drive home the point to me that I'm a lousy servant. 
So whether it's seeing somebody on the road who needed help or uh, talking with someone, um, I am bothered by my schedule too much. And so I wouldn't stop to help someone or I wouldn't take extra time on the phone or something to help someone because I think about, I've got this meeting coming up or I've got this appointment coming up. And it all kind of came to a head one day. I, was, I drove out my, uh, from my house and I came around the side street and I saw a neighbor, uh, neighbor woman live behind us struggling with something, she, project she was doing. And I turned and went down the street, headed to the office, and I was about a half mile up the road. I'm thought, that's terrible. <laughs> You're terrible. There's a woman who needs help, and you can see she's struggling with it. And, and you're going to go to the office because you have to be there because you're covering the phones at 9 o'clock or whatever. That's terrible. I turned around, I went back, and I went over and helped her. I have to be somewhere. Maybe that's not your personal anxiety. Maybe yours is, I'm not sure what's the best way to start having this spiritual conversation. I'm not sure what's the best way to start join a club and we want it to be smooth and we want it to be just right and very rarely does that ever happen it's usually clumsy and awkward and we back into it and I'm not sure that God doesn't want it that way so that we depend on him like praying, praying like crazy. God, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to get started. Please help. That's what God wants. That's what he's waiting to hear. Please help. Or another anxiety, I'm afraid I'm going to look like a fool. You and most of the rest of us. I remember when I was uh, early 20s. In fact, there's some of you here who probably know of this group old Christian rock group called Daybreak. Anybody know of Daybreak? Oh, yeah, a few of you. And they had a song on their album, on the one album, called I'm a Fool for Christ's Sake. Whose Fool Are You? It's a great, it was a great song and great lyrics. I'm a fool for Christ's sake. God's really not interested in us being cool. He's much more interested in us being fools if it's in the cause, cause of Christ. Or you might have an anxiety. This might end our friendship. Listen, if, if, if you stand even a 20% chance of seeing someone say yes to Christ, And changing their life here on earth as well as changing their eternal destiny. Isn't even their friendship worth it? Because you might open the door that doesn't get, you know, resolved for another three years. But you open the door, you lost the friendship, somebody else builds on what you started three years from now. And now they're a child of God. Far better for them to be a brother or sister of yours than simply a friend and be lost for eternity. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. This is one of my favorite verses. I just love how comprehensive it is. Verse 13, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a glorious verse? Say it with me. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, doesn't, that means whether you're 8 or 85. That means whether you're a millionaire or you're not sure how you're going to pay the rent this week. That means whether you live in the United States of America or you live in Canada or you live in Argentina or you live in Zimbabwe or you live in Sumatra or China. That means whether you're Caucasian or black or Hispanic, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we, like, hallelujah, 
There's no bars in heaven. And then we have verse 14. But, but how can they, these anyone's, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless we have Christian television? What's it say? And how can they hear about him unless one of us tells them? See this? How can people who don't know Christ come to Christ unless we tell them we carry a sacred trust there's no backup plan we're it so four weeks ago my wife and I were on the second most beautiful beach in the United States of America according to TripAdvisor St. Petersburg, Florida and it was one of the few kind of warmish days it was maybe 72 73 degrees and so we our hotel room looked out onto the beach it's kind of out there a ways and a deep beach and there's a lot of chaise lounges out there and are they cabanas that are anchored in the sand and then you pull up over the chaise lounge is that what it's called cabana so I um, I can burn fairly easily, and so I wanted to have one of these over me. I've had a bunch of things taken off my face over the years, precancer stuff. And, and all of a sudden, my wife was sitting in the chaise lounge. I was in the chaise lounge. I'm, we're pulling this thing up over us, and all of a sudden, Sammy shows up. And he said, would you like to rent this? I'm like, just going to borrow it. <laughs> I said, How much is it? $50 a day. It's only going to be here for about 20 minutes. I don't think so. We can rent it by the hour, and that was some insane price, like $20 an hour or something. I'm like, no, we'll just sit in the sand. And I struck up a conversation with him, and I said, I was asking where he's lived, and, and uh, I said, I detect an accent there. I said, are you from outside the U.S.? He said, yeah. He said, I came to the States in 73, I think he said, from Uganda. I said, ooh, that's back in the days of Idi Amin. He was busy butchering hundreds of thousands of his own people. And he said, yeah, he said it wasn't a good time at all. And so I was asking about his family's, on his third marriage, he said, I hope this one lasts. He said, I figured if we get beyond five years, this will probably last. And, um, and so I'm starting to think about having a conversation with him about Jesus. And... Uh, so I'm having a personal conversation with myself first. Do you do that? Talk to yourself about how you're going to dive in. And I'm, it's like, I um, should ask him, are you a Christian? No, I don't want to do that. So there's a lot of people who aren't Christians who say they are or think they are. If I'm not Jewish, not Muslim, I'm a Christian. Or if I live in the U.S., I'm a Christian. Or if I go to church, I'm a Christian. And that creates problems, unraveling all that. So what, what should I do? So I'm having these this conversation with myself. What should be the start? How do I enter into this? And then I start having a conversation with Sammy in my mind in this sense. So I'd ask him, you know, who does he work for? Well, he works for this company that services a lot of beachfront motels and provides these chaise lounges and cabanas and uh, for about a mile and a half stretch on the beach. So he wanders up and down. I said, well, how, how much do you work? Because he had told me he's on Social Security. He's a year or two younger than I am. I said, well, how much do you work? He said, oh, I work seven days a week. I'm like, really? How's that work? And uh, he was telling me he's getting cash. This is all cash. Um, so I'm figuring, okay, if I start talking about a conversation that he's really reluctant to have, He's probably going to tell me, I got to go. You know, I got to go monitor all these lounges. So I'm having a conversation with myself about myself. And then I'm having a conversation in my head with Sammy. 
And the conversation that God's trying to have with me, I'm not listening to. Because the conversation that God's trying to have with me is, you know Jesus. You don't know if Sammy knows Jesus. You should find that out. Because I want him to know Jesus. I want to leave you with four points. Some of them have to do with the sermon, and some of them are just extras because this is the last sermon on evangelism. <clears throat> I, the first one is going to be the thrust of much of this message. Proclaiming the gospel is your duty to God. And let me make one clarification that I probably didn't make yet. I hope that breeds effort rather than guilt. I'm convinced that guilt is a tool of the devil, by and large, because guilt usually doesn't change anything for us. It just makes us feel bad for a while until we can kind of distract ourselves with other thoughts that the guilt isn't bombarding us as much. I, every time I teach on evangelism, I'm like, guilt's not helpful. I think it really is the enemy's tool because it makes us feel bad for a little bit and we think that's godly and then we don't do anything. I'm not looking, I'm not trying to encourage guilt upon you. I'm trying to encourage you and me to say yes to God more and more. Proclaiming the gospel is your duty and my duty to God. Secondly, the second point of this message, serve others so that they hear you when you proclaim the gospel. Serve them. In other words, make accommodations to them so that they hear you when you proclaim the gospel. You know, Paul was taking the freedoms that he had a right to and saying, I'm not going to take advantage of them because the f my, th this person's, the prospect of them becoming a child of God is too important. Serve others so they hear you when you proclaim the gospel. Third, this is kind of outside our sermon. Before you speak to someone about God, speak to God. I'm convinced that the greatest um, missing piece of our evangelism is prayer. Greatest missing piece of evangelism is prayer. Probably should have done a sermon on that. Because you, you, you can learn techniques... You know, we gave you a technique a couple weeks ago. Alan and BJ taught you three circles that are in that book. But listen, you can probably share that technique with people and, and end up like, I forgot the right verse. I have two circles instead of three. And somebody comes to Jesus anyway. Why? Because it's God that's at work within us, the will to act according to his purpose. And then he's at work in them as well. And every time we pray, it's an acknowledgement. This is ultimately his work and not ours. Before you speak to someone about God, speak to God. And then lastly, and this one's totally outside the view of this sermon, but it's important. It's also kind of a, it's kind of a push for our Keystone Institute, which is going to be all about making disciples who make disciples. And that is this, that if you, by God's grace, you have the privilege of leading someone uh, to faith in Jesus Christ, someone who said yes to Jesus, then it's your job to disciple them. Disciple those who've said yes to God. Disciple those who say, I don't know how to do it. None of us did the first time we did it. Probably every man that I've discipled over the years, and might be uh, a personal discipleship, might be like a dozen and a half or so, I think probably except for maybe four, I've used different curriculum, I've done different approaches, we've, we've studied a book, the next time it's just based on what are your questions as a new believer, let's just talk about this stuff. It's different with everyone. If you love God and love people, you can disciple anybody. And you'll learn along the way along with them. And they'll ask you questions like, I don't know. And you call somebody up who might be able to help you or you'll get a concordance or something 
And you will grow in a way that you never would have imagined, and it will be so invigorating to you. Disciple those who've said yes to God. And if you don't know how to do it, you don't know where to start, talk to me, one of the other pastors. We'd be glad to help point you in a direction, maybe even give you a curriculum to get you off square one. I hope that in this coming year that these three brief messages on evangelism result in some people coming to know Christ and some people showing up here at Keystone that you've had the privilege of leading to Christ. I've never really talked about this from the pulpit. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of you came here from other churches. 20 years from now, we'd love to see that be different and see the vast majority of you are folks that were led to faith in Jesus Christ and this is your first church. It's how it should be if we are carrying out our duty just by virtue of the amount of gospel conversations that we have that are out there, some are going to bear fruit. Let's pray to that end right now. Father, I confess that I have not been as faithful in my duty as you have asked me to be. And perhaps that's true of many of us. We're scared, we're insecure, we don't know the right words to say. And I think so much of that is invested in our confidence in, our, in ourselves instead of our confidence in you. And I, I pray for the growing kinds of faith that will result in prayer and <laughs> tentative, off-kilter, faltering conversations that still leave their mark because they're Holy Spirit driven for all of us that we wouldn't worry about people crossing the line of faith we just worry about our faithfulness in proclaiming Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world and even in these days of COVID-19 we might take advantage of people's conversations about death, maybe their fear of death. So let me tell you about someone who can be a game changer in your life. Because we will all die. What can be done about that? In Jesus' name. Amen.